Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 130. Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you might be feared. I wait for the Lord. Yes, my soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Gracious God and Father, as we uh, give attention to your word this evening, we pray uh, that we would hearken uh, to the word of grace and find that bountiful redemption that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I received a call earlier this week from a lady in Oklahoma. I've, I've never met her, never seen her, but uh, she is a member of one of our sister congregations out in Tulsa. And um, just a few days ago on Friday, her brother just died, and he, he lives up in the Dallas region. And though the funeral director had offered uh, to provide a, a non-denominational chaplain uh, to preside over the service, she said, no, I want a Reformed pastor to officiate. So she called me and asked if I would uh, preach uh, his funeral message. That would preach the gospel to the rest of his family, his friends, and his co-workers. And as a minister of the gospel, you, you find it hard to say no to such moments of great evangelical opportunity. And I asked her, in fact, I think it was the first thing I asked her, I said, well, what what sermon text, what scripture passage do you want me to preach from? And without hardly any hesitation, she said Psalm 130. So I've been spending the past few days thinking on this, and I thought how relevant this passage is um, to our own hearts this evening. It's a short psalm, but it is a psalm whose brevity is matched only by its intensity and its desperation. It's part of a broader corpus of psalms, Something that's referred to as the Psalms of Ascent. You see that here at the beginning of this psalm. Psalms 120 to Psalms 134 all are known as the Psalms of Ascent. They are ostensibly what we would call pilgrim songs. As the people of God every year as they lived throughout the region would make their way three times a year to the city of Jerusalem and ascend Mount Zion as they brought gifts and sacrifices to the Lord whose name dwelt in the temple, they would sing these songs. These songs had particular resonance and it would be for, uh, for them. And in these short verses, I think there's a certain wordplay that gives shape to the movement of this particular prayer. Again, a prayer that the people of God, that families as they made their way to Jerusalem would sing year in and year out. We see this here where that, that, that phrase, even as the, the psalm opens up in the opening verse of crying out, that word there in Hebrew is karah. And it gives way to that language of waiting or hopeful expectation. In the latter half of the psalm, that Hebrew word is kavah. 
So hopefully you can hear that word play that is going on, karat to kava. And I think that provides for us the structure to this psalm. We'll consider two halves this evening. First, the matter of crying. Crying out in verses 1 to 4. And then verses 5 to 8. That hopeful expectation, that waiting uh, that the psalmist undergoes as he awaits that word of pardon in verses 5 to 8. First thing I think we should notice is that this is not the prayer of the idle or complacent. Rather, we are confronting with the, confronted with the cries of a drowning man. It begins, from the depths of woe I raise to thee the voice of lamentation, uh, as uh, the Lutheran hymn upon which this, song is, this psalm is based, as it says. I mean, imagine this uh, picture of being on a sinking ship. You are lost at sea. You're in the midst of a storm and with the waves crashing over you uh, over and over and over again, you would find that your cries would not be something like a, you know, is this mic on? Somebody please, please help. Somebody, Bueller? It's not a, not a prayer like that. This is a cry of desperation. Somebody save me. See, something has led this pilgrim to the brink of utter despair. The pilgrim pilgrim singer turns to the only source of refuge he knows. He turns to the maker of heaven and earth. Be attentive to the sound of my pleading, he wails. That word there, be attentive, only occurs in the Old Testament with respect to the Lord hearing from his holy temple in Jerusalem. It's the very thing that Solomon prays and chronicles that, oh Lord, when we are under the burden of our own sins, when we are suffering dismay and despair on account of our own iniquities, if we would but turn to you and cry out, oh Lord, may your ears be attentive to the sound of my pleas for mercy. Here we find the psalmist this particular pilgrim singer, we do not know his name. His direction is turned to Zion. He pleads for the Lord to come to his rescue. And yet we ask, what is the particular situation which he finds himself in? What gale, what torrent, what storm has led to such a desperate plea that he would describe his situation as a cry coming from the depths of many waters. What crashing waves have caused him to fear for his very life as he finds himself in dire straits? Here we find that this existential crisis, as it were, that he faces is not one of an outward foe or adversary, but rather he is confronted with his own iniquity. You see that in verse 3. See, immediately is drawn to the question of his own sin. Oh Lord, if you would but mark out, if quite literally the Hebrews, if you would watch one of our iniquities, who could stand? I think we're reminded of Psalm 24. Who is it that can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who could enter his holy place? What a Uh, a, a critical question this is for this pilgrim saint who is ascending Mount Moriah as he's making his way to the temple and he's asking himself, who is it that can draw near to the holy place? Though he comes closer and closer to the place where God's name dwells, he finds that his, there is a greater disparity between his own sinful heart 
and the holy God than he ever thought there could be. His own sins have been magnified before him. The consciousness of his own sin confronts him. It overwhelms him. He feels as if he will die under the weight of the coming judgment. This is not an idle observation. This is not a daily stroll or hike going, oh, look at the lilies, you know, look at this particular fir tree or this particular type of bush. He makes his way closer and closer and closer and he feels the weight of despair crushing him underneath as he comes to realize the greatest foe he faces is the enemy within. As he comes to recognize that sin is pervasive, it is like a cancer a cancer that has infected the heart of every man, woman, and child from birth. The truth is too great a burden for him to bear. Perhaps he may have been able to cast aside the prospect of eternity in his own home village, but now as he gets closer to his pilgrim destination, the mask comes off. There's no way for him to evade the matter. The same is true with us today, isn't it? How often do we go about pretending like we will go on living forever? The hair grows gray, it goes thin, we seek to uh, change its color to thicken it up. Our wives get too crinkly, we exchange the men for a younger model. In an age of facelifts and medical advancements, in an era of unprecedented wealth, we surround ourselves with gadgets and toys. We push the elderly out of sight into nursing facilities. We alter the worship service not to give glory to God, but to cater to the young and to the hip. And it's all part of a common practice I think our society does. We want to do everything we can uh, to not have to think about death. We do everything in our power to pretend like death is not waiting for each of us at the end. Then those moments come where the mask is ripped off and the facade is exposed for the ruse that it is. And we can't hide or pretend any longer. Those times come and we are confronted with our own mortality. Our sins that have so often plagued our conscience come out of the closet. They begin to haunt us and torment us and accuse us. And try as we may to drown it out with drugs or alcohol, with music, with a social life, with vocational success, with a prosperous and large family, there comes a point in time where those distractions do not work anymore. And we are confronted with the desperate truth that we are as men lost at sea, drowning under the weight of our own sin and our own misery. That is the reality of the first half of this psalm. Such is the desperate cry of the psalmist. And yet the psalm does not end here. For we see that cry of despair, kara, give way to the posture of expectant hope, kava, and the surety of salvation. Beginning here in verses 5 to 8, that despite the accusing conscience, this pilgrim singer knows that he has no other place 
to turn. He has no other source of refuge, so he continues his ascent up the mountain to the holy place. And we see where his hope is directed. Verse 7, it is directed towards Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. For here he finds not a capricious God. He does not find a malevolent, malignant deity seated in the heavens. Rather, he finds one who is the Lord, the Lord merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and tender compassion. One who does not deal with our sins as they deserve, but as far as the east is from the west, so this God removes our sins from us and casts our sin into the depths of the sea. Here the psalmist declares that all who turn to the Lord, to this God, in expectant hope, will surely find pardon. The psalmist continues to make his way, and though his conscience accuses him, he knows that seated in heaven is one who is greater than his heart or the accusations of his own conscience. One who will indeed secure his redemption and wipe out and obliterate all of his transgressions. The pilgrim moves, yet he waits with bated breath for that word of pardon. And yet the waiting here is not the posture or waiting of a man sitting on death row as he awaits the axe to fall. No, this is the waiting the disposition of a man who knows that his God will come and save. And so he continues to wait. I think what's interesting here is that you look at this word in the Hebrew for wait can also be translated as to hope. There's a certain wordplay that's going on here. You see this alternating even in the ESV between waiting and hope, waiting and hope. It tells you the kind of waiting that's taking place, that's transpiring. This is the one who knows, he says, I am drowning, but I know there is one who is coming to save me. One who will bring assurance to this weary, beleaguered soul. Even as the breakers crash over me time and time again, even as my own conscience accuses me over and over again, there is one greater than my conscience. There is one greater than my heart. There is one who will bring the word of pardon at the right time. And so here is the, the, the waiting, the, the waiting for assurance that his sins have been pardoned, for that word that he can pass and enter the gates of Zion. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? It is him, the one with clean hands and a pure heart. And here is one who knows he does not have clean hands or a pure heart, but he knows that there is one who can clean his hands and purify his heart, that he might enter the holy place. Just as the first four verses are words marked by an intensive cry for help, so in these final verses we find that the passage is marked by an intensive anticipation for that word of pardon. So the pilgrim describes his anticipation as a, notch, as a night watchman who, who waits in the evening for the first sign of light, for the breaking of the dawn. He actually repeats this twice in a repeated refrain. He says, my soul waits 
for such an assurance, even more than the night guard looks for the dawn. With an intensive, singular focus, he says that my expectation is even more zealous than the night guardsman. Nothing will distract him. Nothing will uh, take his attention away from the very thing that will bring him comfort and life. And just as he gives this repeated refrain of his expectant hope as he speaks at a personal level, it now gives way to a replicated pattern as his own personal experience gives way to the expectation of the whole nation. You see that here in verse 7. He says, O Israel, put your hope in the Lord. This pilgrim seems to embody the expectation of the nations. He calls out to all of his surrounding pilgrims, likewise making their way up the mountain. Put your hope in the one who reigns on high in Zion. For he is the God who is slow to anger and abounding in mercy and care. Our own sins of our past haunt us and terrify us. And in one sense, rightfully so. But there is one who has made redemption to deliver us from the horror of sin. Even our own past sins. The pilgrim here speaks of redemption. And I think that's a particular word that we throw around quite a bit in church context. But we have to know and understand that when that word redemption pops up in the Bible, it is a word used to describe the cost that is required to buy the freedom of a slave. That's why it's known as the redemption price. When he speaks of redemption, he's speaking of the cost that is required to deliver him from the tyranny of someone or something that holds his heart and conscience in bondage and terror. That this redemption, whatever it might be, signals that severing of the yoke between the slave and his former master. You read through the rest of Scripture and you find the ways in which sin is described as the great slave master of the human race. What is it our Lord says in John chapter 8? He who commits sin is a slave of sin. Paul himself speaks of the enslavement of the whole human race to sin in the book of Romans. Now it's not just the act of sin the desire to sin, the love for sin. It is like the ring of power in Tolkien's great book. With Gollum, it is the thing that he both loves and hates. It is his precious. Such is sin as it relates to us. As sin exerts a tyranny that chokes us and oppresses us, we love it and both hate it, where the weight of guilt holds us captive and the threat of death hangs over us like the sword of Damocles waiting to fall. It impels us and it drives us to further and further despair. We can ask ourselves, why is it that we fear death? Perhaps it's a question you've spent your whole life evading. There are those moments where reality strikes quick and hard and we recognize and we can't evade the reality that death comes for each and every one of us. 
but God has provided a redemption price to deliver us from sin and death. And sending His Son to bear the curse of sin at the cross. The book of Hebrews says, since therefore the children of man, the sons of Adam, share in blood and in flesh, the everlasting, eternal Son of God partook in those same things. He took to Himself a true body and a reasonable soul. The eternal Son of God became man that He might live and that He might die. So that through death, He might put death to death. That He might destroy Satan who wields the threat of death like a sword. And that He might deliver us from enslavement, as Hebrew says, to the fear of death. This this deliverance from sin's enslavement is assured to the people of God by the resurrection of Christ, that He, having died and now being raised, can never die again. Death has no power over Him. And so the resurrection of Christ is spoken of as the first fruits, the down payment, the guarantee that death will not have the last word for any of the people of God. So that all who put their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ will have their sins pardoned and will be delivered from death on the day in which Christ returns. And He will raise us up from the dead just as a mother comes into her child's room first thing in the morning and says, honey, it's time to wake up. So on the day of Christ's return, He will say, child, arise, shine. The glory of the Lord has shined upon you. See, there's only one way to evade death's eternal sting. And that is through faith in the one who bore the sting of death, that we might not taste it. That deliverance cannot be found in numbing yourself to the truth by attempting to drown it out through sex or success, through drugs or philanthropy, It is not found through medication or excessive good works. It is not found through political activism or climbing the corporate ladder. The only way your troubled conscience can be put at ease is through putting your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has come to redeem us from the love of sin, who has come to redeem us from slavery to sin, and who has come to redeem us from the curse of sin and the sting of death. Just as the psalmist promises here, the Lord will redeem Israel from all her iniquities. So the Lord has done in sending Christ to redeem us from sin and from Satan at the cross, where he canceled the record of debt that stood against us by nailing our sins at the cross of Calvary, where he died in our place, where sinless though he was, he was condemned as a common criminal, where Christ bore our sins that we might bear His righteousness. And now we have that great assurance and hope that on the day of Christ's return, He will slay death once and for all. Death is described as a giant scorpion with a, a tail. And its sting has been severed. And yet there comes a day where the scorpion itself will be struck down and destroyed. Just like a drowning man lifted from a watery grave, there will come a day when Christ will deliver from the tomb all those who call upon Him for salvation.
On that day where He will lead us into a land where righteousness dwells. Where not even death's shadow can touch that celestial shore. As we consider this psalm, it's short, but it packs a punch. We're reminded of the call to put our hope in Christ. If you find that your past sins continue to accuse and condemn you, be reminded of this truth, Romans chapter 8, who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God alone who justifies. And this God gave His Son to bear sin in all of its condemning power that we might not taste a drop of it. So put your hope in Christ. Wait eagerly for Him for that word of pardon. For surely with Christ there is forgiveness. Surely with Christ there is the redemption. Vast and free. Plentiful and abundant. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we pray that we would trust in You and not on our own merit. We pray that You would uphold our fainting spirits and in Your abounding grace deliver us from all of our sin and sorrow. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.